You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Well, every time I get to revisit and be with you all, I just sense that the relationships continue to grow. And uh, I just thought I would dress appropriately in regard to the relationships that uh, have developed here. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not often that I come to Sunday morning service riding a Harley. Uh, so I just want to thank Max for the added blessing of just these little uh, touches. You know, as I was um, coming in, um, Jeff had the responsibility of getting Steve Dutton, our international director, to another church to speak. Um, and I just, we talked about, you know, I, maybe I should ride the motorbike. What Max does every time I come, he asks me, or the last couple times, you know, can I get you my motorbike? And this time I had a choice, the Yamaha or the Harley. And I opted for the Harley. And I knew I needed to get it back to church and probably, you know, get it returned to Max. And uh, because Jeff had to leave and he wasn't going to be able to ride me, I thought, well, maybe I'll just follow him to church. But then realized I needed to come on my own because the times didn't, you know, work out so well for him to drop me off on the way. Uh, so I'm trying to get the directions in my mind, and um, I made the right turn, the first right turn, but I wasn't certain that I was actually on the right road. There was a car up ahead of me, and I just said in my heart, you know what, I bet that car will get me right to the, um, the driveway of Eltham Baptist. So I began to follow it, but all of a sudden, after we turned... It dawned on me that he was in the left lane and I was in the right lane. It was, it was beautiful. You know, there was nobody coming. Um, and suddenly I realized that I'm in Australia. So we shifted over to, the, to behind the car and just kept tucked in. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to explain myself once I get to church. Um, it's the Mazda 3, a silver one. And uh, as we came uh, to the driveway and as we uh, were about to turn in, I was greatly relieved when he kept on driving, and I turned it. <laughs> so anyway, Max, I don't know if you're here, uh, but I just, where's Max? Oh, there you are, Max. Thank you so much. The bike is absolutely fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. What speed does it do? <clears throat> well, fortunately... We didn't have any issue with the cops, so I'm sure the speed was... <clears throat> Truly, we do life through relationship. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so touched being here, because of the, the beauty of the relationships. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't have words except to say that I feel like I'm part of the family. Matt was just very gracious. He said, Jonathan, if you're here for another week, uh, we would extend, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, membership to you. I'm sure you could get in. Um, but it's just great to know you guys have an AGM coming up, and there's going to be some more decisions being made. And I just want you to know that I'm rooting for you. In fact, I'm planning with you. And uh, as I, I came here the other evening, for the, was it the Thursday evening event? I was again looking at the girders and uh, looking at what it's going to take to expand this facility. And again, I was so amazed at how simple the construction is and how quickly 
we could take it apart. Um, and then I realized that this place is smaller than I remembered it being. And then I thought about the Sunday school classrooms, and I have a new plan. It's not about expanding the church. You guys need a much bigger facility. I think you need to do some serious thinking. Now, I'm not, I haven't talked with your pastor, and this isn't planned, but I think it might be, it might be good to just prayerfully consider a very large tent <laughs> that you could set up somewhere on the property for a period of a year while you take and dismantle this whole facility and start over with something from the ground up with two levels so you have all of the needed classroom space. You need a foyer as big as your auditorium for just fellowship and special functions. And then you need a design that can expand after you've built. Uh, so I just, I just throw that out to you. And the reason, the reason why I, I, I feel strongly about this is that there are a few places where my heart is so at peace with the nature of what God is doing and the quality and the integrity of the love for the Lord and the love for the nations. You need to gather as many people together as possible and be able to pass this DNA. You need to be able to support multiple missionaries. You need to be able, it's so beautiful seeing these young kids here. You're growing the next generation. EBC is going to be so much further ahead if it has a vision that starts from the age of these beautiful little girls. Where will they be? What will their church be like? What will, will their world be like? What will the opportunities be like? May the Lord bless you and lead you. And I say this with all my heart, that he would give you wisdom. And to Stuart, I pray that the Lord will, will guide him and, and lead him and give him the confidence. But this is a day where things are difficult. This is a day where opportunities abound and this is a day where we need to stand together we need to take our positions we need to to know clearly what the lord has for us and then confidently take our stand and again though it comes back to relationships so i just want to you know i mean if Stuart's going to tell you about my bathroom habits i think i need to confess some other things about Stuart. so um <laughs> By the way, yeah, it was, it was a report, and it worked. It generated the kind of uh, <laughs> financing that we needed for the next couple of months. <clears throat> but um, I wrote a steward an email for those of you who weren't over to the house for our little gathering, for those of you who had come to Greece already. So please forgive me if you hear some of the uh, repeat on a couple of the items here. But Stuart, uh, I wrote Stuart an email uh, because I'd had this, this crazy experience. I had a dream about Stuart. Now, when you have dreams about Pastor friends around the world, you know that the relationship is, must be a little extra special. But um, here's what I wrote to him. The weirdest thing, just, I just woke up after a dream that had a secret agent following me and photographing our entrance to the house, but not revealing who she was, uh, who she was working for. And during our troubled hours, somehow you flew in with three or four of your guys 
to travel a little of the journey together. I mean, look, man, I'm in this dream, and I'm harassed, you know. It's like intensely uh, trying to figure out what was going on and feeling that we were getting checked out, and um, I, was, I was a bit nervous in my dream. And along the journey, in flies Stuart with some of the guys from EBC. That's quite something when you can be ministered to in your dreams, too, by someone from around the world. I woke before the mystery was solved. So, Sherlock, we have work to do. But then again, after our roadside incident with the biker in Athens, for those of you who don't know about it, I don't know how comforted I am. <laughs> As for the dream, my stress was that all I cared about was that longing to hang out and go for that coffee, and my accompanying fear that the time wasn't going to be long enough. Looking forward to being together again. So this was a few months back, November. The response, <clears throat> so Watson... This should be easy to deduce. The fact that the secret agent was less than secret tells me instantly that they were either an amateur or simply suffering from an inflated self-esteem. Whilst parading a false sense of bravado, that they were able to follow you means that they had resources to back their mission. The fact that you were able to communicate with them, depending on whether you dream in Greek or in English, I'll assume Greek, and you fail to mention an account tells me that they were either native Greek or good enough to pass as such. The fact that you use a feminine pronoun tells me that the spy was female. Just amazing. And lastly, the fact that so many of us flew in to assist resolves the puzzle with a frightening finality and leads me to one undeniable conclusion. We better order four more copies to be on the safe side. <laughs> Or you can avoid all this trouble and simply come to Australia for coffee. Blessing Sherlock. <laughs> yeah, I just want to thank the Lord truly for this rich relationship and with Jeff and Carmen, with all of you and the work teams and the countless of you who've come over to Operation Joshua's. And I just feel warmed and accepted and loved. And it's so wonderful to be able to join this, uh, travel this journey together. A few years ago, I told you about my relationship with my wife. Um, then I came back and told you how Australia got the best of my daughter, who married into a, an Australian family, and she lives in Townsville. And this time I'm back to tell you that uh, the page is turning one more time and on this journey, and I'm going to be a granddad. Oh, my goodness. So life is, uh, life is uh, moving along rapidly. Um, but you know, there's something happens, there's a progression of life, and as our children leave home and they make their own decisions and they have children, um, it's really interesting because you suddenly begin to realize the value of this incredible woman that's been standing by your side. Um, Matt mentioned about the value of his wife who cares for the kid, for the children. And um, I, I have just been incredibly impacted by... A, this deep appreciation for this woman that God has given me uh, to be a partner in life and ministry. And um, as I am away, I find myself writing intensely romantic text messages. Um, and it's just um, a desire to express my appreciation. It's just what I feel. Uh, the longer we're, I could never have imagined. You guys are having your 30th year anniversary. Well, so are we, uh, May 19th. And um, we're trying to figure out where to go, what to do, well, how to celebrate. 
Uh, but the Lord has been so good in giving me this wonderful woman, and she, she told me the other day to, to watch what I write because Joran was reading the text messages as well, our 10-year-old at home. Um, but as I was thinking about the journey that we do with our wives and, and the question, I had no idea that the wives weren't going to be here today, so I'm in a safe space. Um, but as I began thinking about you know, the whole role of the wives next to us, um, I began to recognize that really what the Lord is wanting to do is to help us understand the intensity and the depth of his love for the church. It's really he's given us a chance to get to know him, to be conformed to him, to, to his image, and then he's placed us in relationships with one another um, in order to help spur us on in community, to help us grow together but then he's given us, to many of us who are married, he's given us the intimacy of a marriage relationship. And as we mature in those relationships, he allows us to, to have just a sneak preview of the nature of his intense and passionate and romantic love for his church. Amen? I was just thinking, man, we should be celebrating Mother's Day and, you know, more times a year. Um, Women come into our lives and, and they patiently, patiently walk alongside of us and put up with us. We have so much to learn from these, the women who most often are responders. Um, and I don't know, we, we think that because we're physically uh, sometimes larger or stronger, that we have a, a sense of capacity to endure and to, oh, we're just the stronger part of this relationship. But in reality, it's our wives, I believe, who are much stronger as people. In their quietness, there's an inner strength that can, I mean, handle pain. Like, how many of us men would be able to kind of handle the kind of excruciating pain of childbirth? Hmm? Or um, oftentimes when something happens to a relationship and there's a death in the family, or, you know, I, for, I'll just take my mom, for example. When my dad died, I, my greatest fear uh, in my later teen years was something happening to dad and mom having to be left alone. I thought mom would go into depression and it would be all over. In fact, yeah, I was, I was more nervous about what would happen to mom than if dad died. And the inevitable happened, and the Lord took dad uh, to glory about 10 years ago. And we had arranged as a family, there's six of us kids, that each of us would have mom for two months at a time, and then we would close the circle of a year, and then we'd start over again. So we, were, we, had, we had the plan in place. We braced for the emotional impact of what this would be for mom, and we were going to be there for her. And dad dies, and after two days um, of being with, uh, I can't remember, with my, I think with my sister, she goes, can I go back home again? <laughs> can I go back home yet? <laughs> she wanted out. She wanted to go right back to her home and pick up life where it continued. In fact, dad died, and as we were coming down from intensive care, we lost mom in the stairwell. Mom had already gone down, to, down a, a hospital wing, and she continued the visitation of another suffering patient whom she'd been encouraging going up and down through the, the hospital ward, attending to dad over those two weeks. And so we had to wait 
until she finished caring for her need to support and encourage somebody else in her grief of just losing her partner. So I'm seeing this incredible strength emerge out of my mom that I never expected and believed was there. But that's indicative of the women in our lives. They have this inner resilient strength that sometimes we underestimate. The beauty is, though, that as wonderful as our women are, they give us an opportunity to reflect on who we are. And I was just wanting to look at the essence of the early church and what it took for the early church to stand. And we're talking with Stuart the other day that really the circumstances of the early church are being mirrored and reflected in the culture of our day. I wonder how comfortable and of ease of presence we will have as the body of Christ in our local communities. I think you have it more difficult here in Australia than we do in Greece. Okay, now we get harassed on the street. They tell us they're going to burn the Bibles, all kinds of crazy things. I've been dragged to the street, thrown in prison, clinks, t- taken rides in the backseat of police cars more times than I can count. I'm familiar with the courtrooms. I and mean, we've been harassed like nobody's business. But in terms of just being present in the community and the society, in five years, in eight years, in ten years, I can't remember sharing Christ with somebody and just on a day-to-day basis and having a resistant spirit to what I was sharing. There's an openness in Greece. The community is small, it's fragile, but there's an openness. Here, it's this post-Christian attitude towards all things religious. I think you have a much more difficult time to take your stand as Christians and to do it well. I think that there would be a lot more temptation to cower into the corner, to cower back into your workspace, to hide, so to speak, from having to be confronted with those who have opposing feelings of the church. And I think it's time for Eltham and, and your community here to embrace one another and to take your stand courageously, even as Peter had to in the early church. But as we look at our wives who are responders to us, the question is how are we responding to this measure of love to the Lord and how are we growing in our confidence to stand? Is it in our abilities? You know, as guys, I just am reflecting personally, I believe that a large part of our makeup is a culmination or some total of our fears and our anxieties and our struggle with our identity. And when all things are said and done, women find their purpose in nurturing, in loving, in caring. We as men spend half our lifetime trying to figure out who we are, trying to find out our purpose, trying to find out, you know, our strengths, our, trying to avoid our weaknesses. And, and there's none that are better than others. I don't know how transparent I should be, but I had to battle anxiety this morning when I got up, had a bit of a headache, didn't have the best of sleep last night, you know, and and I thought of Stuart, and I said, you know, how is that I get to speak in this church? And And I thought of Stuart and what an excellent teacher he is, and the devil came and 
tried to put a seed of comparison. It's like I could never match Stuart's quality of teaching. And I had to just do battle. It's like that's from the devil. Nothing's going to get between me and my brother. You know, I am who I am because I am who I am that God has created. But we as men struggle so much with our identity. Even in the things we do really well, there's always someone who does it just a little better. And so we, we, we confine ourselves. When we talk about the gospel, we're really a reflection of all our fears. Because our identity is so crystal fragile. That's why I appreciate my wife so much. She accepts me as who, for who I am. I sent her a text message this morning. And I told her, I said, man, you are so much a part of everything I do. You are the love of my life, and I thank you for giving me so much confidence. My wife has quietly walked alongside, and I don't know what it is, but this partnership and her love for the Lord, her intensity in prayer has just given me this quiet strength, this inner strength. And so as we look at ourselves in relationship, we owe a lot to our wives, but we owe a lot to them not only because of what they do for us, but what they show of who we are, our brokenness, our humanness, our weaknesses. The way we fumble the ball, we mismanage our relationships even at home. But then if we do a good analysis and we take an accounting of who we are, it gives us the ability to, in a spirit of transparency, to come before the Lord and to lay down all those weaknesses. And we take courage and we move on. But the call is to, for us to take our stand against those fears and those things that continually remind us of our inept capacity for failure. So as we look at the Scripture um, in our study, you know, again, we enjoy coffee together. We enjoy biking. I mean, there's so many things that tie our hearts together. And I find out that there's one other similarity. I mean, where our church plant is so small. It's so much fun. It's small. You guys are much, you know, you guys are so much further down the road. But we do some things the same way. We take a couple of years to get through a book of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's also interesting is like we, we're kind of doing tag teaming you know when uh, when um, you know I just look at where Stuart is and you know he's in Acts for two years and I think that's a good idea so we're in Acts and uh, we're studying the, the early church and looking at Peter's life and I've taken so much encouragement from Peter Peter's the, the dynamic, the powerful, the guy that you would like to be. Like if of the 12 disciples, who would you like to be? Who would you like to most be like? Wouldn't it be Peter? I mean, the guy knew how to row his boat. The guy was tough. The guy, I'm sure he had a macho-ness to him. I mean, every time you turn the scriptures, Peter's somewhere to be found in the... He singled himself out somehow. I mean, I think he was a guy's guy. But Peter goes through this incredible transformation, and that's what I want. That's what I think we need as a body, to be transformed in our thinking in terms 
in, in such a way, not just to hear the gospel and hear good messages and say, sing wonderful songs, it's wonderful, but the truth has to indelibly penetrate our thinking in such a way that it begins to transform us from the inside out. And we see Peter's life, and I take great encouragement, like if anyone knows how to mess things up, it was Peter, if, and that I can associate with that. Right? We, we make mistakes. So if we look at Peter before the churches start, before the ascension, and Peter after the ascension, there's this incredible transformation that has taken place. Peter before the ascension is the guy who's trying to do it all in his strength. Remember right up leading up through the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus has been warning the disciples that it's going to get tough. I'm going to be, you know, the Son of Man needs to lay his life down. He explains everything to the disciples and they're just not getting it. But then the hour of reckoning comes and the troops arrive. Their torches lit. Their armor on. Their swords in their hand. Their spears. And there's this steady militaristic beat to their step as they approach this little wandering weak fragile group of disciples with their teacher so peter having already told christ that he would never deny him and that he would stand by him and that christ would never be taken by the sword decided that his measure to support the cause of the kingdom was to take that sword and start wielding it. So he did the best he could in his own power. He took that sword and he swung it, and that one Roman officer must have just ducked in time, but not far enough, and his ear got sliced. So Jesus is already correcting the mistakes of his disciples, and he hasn't, the church hasn't even started yet. If we go back a few more pages, Peter has a continual kind of, there's the denial moment, there's, there's the time where Peter fails in the waves, uh, there's Peter that is shifting between just trying to grapple with reality and doing life in his own understanding. But then if we go closer to the, uh, the following the, the, um, the crucifixion, there's the fear that sets in to Peter's heart. It takes over. And he's with the disciples, and they're cloistered in that room. They're fearful that it won't be long before they too are martyred, that they too are crucified alongside of their Savior. Their entire strategy is conceived out of the pitfall of their fears. How many of us do life starting from the benchmark of our fears? Like if it feels comfortable and safe, then we're okay to take the next step. If fear is in the way in any way, anxiety, boy, it causes us generally to cater our strategy and our plans so that we continuously stay in the safe zone. Sometimes we're just forced by nature and by circumstance to take a difficult step. But oftentimes the fear of the sacrifice is greater than the joy of triumph. 
And so we see the disciples have cloistered together in fear of being rooted out by the Romans, Roman soldiers. The crucifixion happens, and then the ascension. And 40 days goes by, and Christ has told them to remain. And they're all gathered in the city for the feast. When the day of Pentecost arrived, chapter 2 of Acts, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Further down in the passage, it speaks of how amazed and astonished they were and, and uh, the, the crowd was. And especially because there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors were even there from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even Cretans and Arabians. The Mediterranean world was all there. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said they are filled with new wine. There was a riot, I believe, that was on the verge of starting. And there were thousands of people all surrounding the disciples. We know there were thousands because 3,000 of them believed. So how many more were there? When, as the church is starting, it hasn't even gotten off the ground and there's, there's a confrontation to be had. And I'm, I guess it's parallel to our lives as well. As you're growing in your faith and the Lord that wants to do a special work in and through you, the first thing you'll be confronted with is a testing of your courage. I don't know why the Lord does it that way. I seriously stand before you perplexed and I have no idea why it's like that. A loving father would not ask a child to do something and then place an obstacle for him to prove himself. And yet that's how it works. I guess we do that as dads to some degree. We don't want to give anything too free. Have to make the child work a little bit for it. But out of the loving nature of God, He is calling us out of our circumstances and placing us in difficult places to take our stand for Him. It's not a measly church. It's not a weak church. This is a powerful, dynamic movement of God on earth. And we're being called to take territory from the enemy. And you think that's going to be easy. So we take all our fears and we associate our fears with the cross. And in, in our lives as Christians, everything and anything we do has to be able to be pinned to the foot of the cross. Like that's our, like that's our compass reading. There is no truth. There is no you cannot do anything properly in your secular or Christian life without taking note of where the cross is in your equation. And as we take our fears, we look at the, to the cross and, and determine how is the gospel impacting our decision. It's got to be centrally focused on the significance of the cross. And you know what's been really encouraging to me and my fears, I, I will tell you, there's two, I've just, as of 
a week or two ago, connected the dots and recognized I have two times of the year where I suffer intensely from doing battle with fear. It's in October, Halloween season, and it's, the Mar and it's in March, February, March, during the Mar Mardi Gras period, you know, 40 days out of Easter. It's like the demons are just free, and they know our weaknesses. And, and the devil knows you quite well. So especially for you guys, he's going to come and he's going to work you over time in the, in the specific nature of your weakest part of your armor. And he's going to tantalize you with your anxiety and your fears. And I'm telling you, we either take a stand courageously, admit to it, and fight for everything we have in the power of the gospel, or we just let fear have its best way and force us into the corner. So Peter, so differently than before the cross, sees the crowd. He's not locked in behind doors. Here's the jeering. Here's the mocking. And it attracts him. And there's four things that Peter does. But Peter standing... So Peter, yeah. I'm sorry, let me start over again. Verse 14. But, but, the crowds are on the outside the stress is on the outside. The fear is on the outside. But Peter takes his stand. And who does he stand with? He doesn't stand alone. That's the other beautiful thing. We see Peter is taking his stand with the 11. There's another 11 people that are willing to lay their lives down for the cause of their Jesus. Who are the 11 in your lives? You have quantum fears. And you know what? You probably don't want to admit them because that would make you look a little even weaker than you already feel. So who are the guys in your life that you can share your fears with, talk open and honestly with, and then take your stand together with? Ross and Heather are leaving. I saw their little Ella. Is that right, Ella? Here in front. And immediately my heart went out and I said, you know what? They are going to miss her so much. They're going to miss being in this worship service. They're going to need to know that as they're standing, there's their 11 that are standing with them. Hmm? We do battle best together, not alone. In the workplace, wherever you are, you need to identify your 11. Standing with the 11, he lift, lifted up his voice. He didn't just talk. He lifted up his voice so he could be heard. There are ways that Eltham Community, Eltham Baptist Church needs to continuously raise its voice. Maybe it's on the internet. Maybe it's through the, the festivals that you do. Maybe it's the special services. But you need to lift up your voice. You cannot do church quietly and serenely in these four walls where no one's hearing and call it church. That's not the church. That's not the church. So he lifted up his voice, and then in the Greek it says that he talked to them. He spoke to them. He addressed them. Our time is on the shy end right now, but I want to just refer to a couple more passages that the Lord may use to encourage your hearts. In Joshua chapter 1, there's a, there's a really neat similarity. 
After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, verse 1, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise. Interesting, isn't it? Now therefore arise. Now therefore take your stand. Get up. It's time to do battle. Elton Baptist Church, it's time. Take your stand. Whatever it is that you are confronting in this culture, that you are confronting in your workplaces, it's time to lay those things that need to die, lay them, let them, let them die and rise. Most of my servants dead now, therefore, arise. The next, go over this Jordan. Interestingly, how many Jordans were there? Go over this Jordan. You know what? You get over the first Jordan and you're in enemy territory. You're not home. You've just entered the task of the reality of the church. The church hadn't started and Peter had to take on this crowd. And it was the first of many. If we look at the persecution that riddles on you guys, I don't need to be preaching to you about Acts. You were in it for two years. But the, the, the nature of persecution that came out against the church, it was just that first brief pause that they had. And then the rest was just dotted with persecution. <clears throat> Joshua is to take the promised land, but he has to cross this Jordan. And there were many other, quote-unquote, Jordans to cross. You and all this people into the land that I am giving to them and to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Not I will give to you. I have given to you. Just as I promised Moses. And then he lists the territory that he's going to give. So in my season of struggle with anxiety regarding failure, I don't have time enough to tell you all of those areas where I've struggled with the fear of failure in this last while. The Lord has encouraged my heart looking at the early church because the church was born in a season of persecution and struggle. Joshua's mandate came to him with a promise that all he had to do was to walk, to take his stand and face the enemy. The work of the Lord in the early church was the work of the Lord. It was the, 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 the disciples merely spoke concerning what they had witnessed. So if we can take our greatest fears, and if we're walking in a measure of obedience, the formula is very simple. God has already promised to give me the victory. It's not about my performance. I mean, we have to do our best. But if God has already promised that he, will, that he has already given, then all I have to do is claim. I have to just be present. I have to face 
my fears. I have to cross the Jordan. I have to face that crowd. And the Lord will cause the 3,000 to believe. It wasn't Peter that caused them to believe. The entire work rested on the power of the Holy Spirit. So often we focus on the power of the Holy Spirit to do it was, that it was for the disciples. Well, yeah, in terms of believing, but the power was demonstrated in that the Holy Spirit caused all these ethnic groups, interesting that the church was birthed in a season, in an environment of missions, right? All these nations were being impacted. And so Christ has called each of you as part of the church, as responders to the great love of the Lord, not as ones that have to perform and gain your assurance of acceptance, but by virtue of the fact that you are loved by the nature of his expression on the cross, you are loved, you're called to take your stand, you're called to stand together, not against each other, you're called to move towards the enemy line, you're called to raise your voice, you're called to speak, Speak of what you know. And the work, the rest of the work, the rest of the work is the Lord's. As we operate in this mode, we will be continuously surprised about the nature of the Lord's love for us, not about the nature of our performance. We are so far removed from accomplishing any of the results of what we hope for that we're constantly in this state where if it's not of the Lord, it's going to fall flat on its face. Okay? Just one example. In November, we went to Lesbos. Four of us went to Lesbos. And Lesbos is the largest hot spot on, on the borders of Europe where of the million or so refugees that have come, Nearly 650,000, 700,000 have come through the island of Lesbos. And of the camps that they are attending, we managed the largest camp on the island by God's grace and mercy. We were so excited about what was, God was doing. Is we had, a, just, we had a, a cash stream coming our way. And as fast as we could spend the money, we were able to bless people in the name of Jesus. The interesting thing is that after over a year of serving the refugees, we were still having hundreds of volunteers coming every two weeks. We've topped uh, nearly 4,000 volunteers have come from around the world to assist on the island of Lesbos with this refugee crisis. So we're just stewarding this opportunity. And in November, we went to Lesbos on a special mission. I had the hunch that before the end of the year, uh, was over, we were going to learn that there would be no more funding. So the question was, what will we do come January? Guys, I am so far removed. Like we haven't, because we've had steady stream of cash, I haven't done any fundraising for this Lesbos crisis. Sure enough, so at the end of our time, we went on a mission to, to hear what is it that God wants us to do. And I didn't go alone. I took a pastor. I took another businessman the project manager, and my brother. We took the day, got on a flight, landed in Lesbos, toured all of the sites where ministry is happening, and at the airport in the afternoon, I stood in a circle. I said, okay, guys, what is God saying to us? Do we duck and run now that the funding is over, 
or do we stay and continue helping these refugees? I wish I had time to put up a couple of pictures. Uh, during one of the crises um, with fires, uh, there, there was some danger that had come up, and we weren't getting the backing and support by the police, so we all pulled out for a day or two. The refugees got so concerned, they started writing big posters begging for us to come back, and they started expressing their, themselves on these posters uh, in terms of what they as Muslims were feeling about your relief. One of the placards wrote, your relief loves people. So could we leave these people because we're not having the finance stream continuing? And we sat there, and I just asked, I went around the room, and around the circle, and each one of them said, no matter what, we're not leaving. We're going to stand here with our Muslim brothers and friends. So the inevitable happened. I found out in January that the cash stream was over. I got guys there that I have to, I have to salary, I have to support. I have, we can't put fuel in cars. We can't even get them home. But the God of the universe has chosen to encourage my heart that the work is his and he will find a way to fund this in his own way. It's kind of like Christmas. We all have the image of the three, the three the wise men that came from the east bearing their treasures for the Savior to lay them at the feet of Jesus into our Christian bank account to fund what we're doing to bless the Muslims. Isn't that incredible? <clears throat> There's a number of examples of people that take their stand, but I'm going to close with this one. Keep in your mind to Ephesians 6. What does it say about taking our stand against the enemy? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in, in the evil day and having done all stand firm. In Lebanon, we visited a crisis center where refugees were being helped. And on the way to seeing the camp and the facilities, uh, the discussion in the car was about, what was about what the jihad was doing. The jihad in the area was feeding, caring, financing, blessing, food, clothing. It was just unbelievable. And I, I finally just piped up from the back of the four-wheel drive and I said, Guys, this is like totally insane. How is it possible that jihad is doing all this? And they, they, the driver and the person next to him turned back and they looked at me puzzled as though I'd missed something. And they said, Jonathan, jihad is a pastor. So um, I'm going to read jihad's letter to the churches of Europe. It doesn't apply exactly, but it's just an example of another man who's taken his stand. Okay. Dear pastors in Europe, greetings in Christ. We are in a very critical period of time concerning the refugees flooding into your countries. You have a golden opportunity. You either choose it or lose it and lose Europe forever. Families arriving to your seashores are broken, wounded, and needy. A warm welcome may change their perspectives and beliefs in no time. They are fleeing from the tyranny of Islam and are in a real struggle about their convictions. They grew up with the mentality of being the best nation and religion ever created upon the earth and are brainwashed with all others 
I'm sorry, and brainwashed that all others are lost. They were never allowed to think or doubt. It all came down from God. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to wake up with a new crusade carrying the real weapons this time. Use prayer, faith, evangelism, social aid, and much love. Muslims are the captives of Islam. They need someone to open their eyes and liberate them. You don't need to send missionaries anymore. They're at your doorsteps. Build relationships with them, one family at a time, not in big groups. Let them see the real face of Christianity, the Christianity of worshiping God in spirit, not the Christianity of idols, the Christianity of families dedicated to God, not the Christianity of immoral values, the Christianity of the demonstrated power of the Holy Spirit, not the Christianity of lukewarm churches, the Christianity of the old revived Europe, not the Europe of atheism. Our Lord is still on the throne. Do not ever underestimate the small percentages coming now to your countries. They will become the majority very soon. They don't have to preach Islam. They don't have to fight. Most of your families have one child and a dog. Their families have six or seven children. It is a strategy. Be cautious. The enemy is so devious. One of our old famous Arabic poets once wrote, If you see the teeth of the lion... Do not ever think the lion is smiling. Muslims are not our enemies. They are our beloved brothers in humanity and with many wonderful Middle Eastern habits. They are generous in hospitality, merciful to the poor, and emotionally tied to their families and communities. Hurry up and take care of them before they embrace Islam. History will witness one day that God in His wisdom has sent to you the hungry to give him meat, the thirsty to give him a drink, the stranger to take him in, and the naked to clothe him. Now will you respond? Some will take advantage of you for sure, but others will fall in love with your God. Break the language barriers and use dedicated Arabic-speaking Christians in your countries. Break the cultural barriers and try to understand a Muslim's mind. Break the long-distance barriers and ask the help, get this, of some outreach teams from the Arab world as short-termers. You have a wonderful opportunity. I beg you to open your eyes before it becomes too late. A burdened pastor in the Middle East. Men, will you take your stand? Your wives are depending on it. The church is depending on it. And the cause of the kingdom is dependent on it. May the Lord in his power do the work as we stand firm on the conviction of the cross and the liberty that we have and the freedom in Christ. May the Lord bless you, Eltham, as you continue to grow and expand your vision, strategize like you've never strategized before, and reach the kingdom um, borders as best you can for his glory. May the Lord bless you richly. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.